0: If you open your Bibles to Judges 19. And we'll get there eventually. We'll get to Judges 19 eventually. We're beginning a new series today, which is sort of broadly on the subject of human sexuality. <clears throat> and... I'd like us to start with the topic of uh, the question, what is normal? You know, in society, uh, a lot of what <clears throat> is sexually permissible in our prevailing society is anchored in what is socially normative. So what, is, what does it mean that something is normal? It seems like a pretty simple idea, but normal is a bit of an elusive subject it suggests, when something you say something's normal, it suggests that it meets your expectation of what it ought to be. It meets your expectation of what it ought to be. If uh, I wasn't feeling well, I didn't want to go to school, I'd go to my mom, she'd put a, a thermometer in my mouth, she'd look at it and she'd be like, no, your temperature is normal. Go to school. right? It's, the temperature is what it ought to be. A doctor puts a... Takes your blood pressure, says your blood pressure is normal. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to hear that, right? It's where it ought to be. You drive by Walmart, they say price is way below normal. What they're saying is, is listen, we're not selling you stuff for what it ought to be sold for. We're, we're, we're going, we're taking it in the gut for you. If you're the new kid in school, you're not normal, right? Because what... The classroom used to have a way it was supposed to look, and now you're kind of filled it in. So if you're, you know, in those environments, it only lasts a couple of weeks. But for a little bit of time, there's a recalibration of normal. Normal is when something meets our expectation of what it ought to be. But something's interesting about normal, which is it's constantly changing. Our definition of normal is often changing. We might say often and always, in some degree of flux. There's reasons for that. One, you change. Like we, as individuals, change. We go through puberty. We have experiences. We, we grow, and that changes. <clears throat> that has a kind of a an influence on what we think is normal. Uh, and then the world changes around us. And that affects the definition of normal. So I, uh, at some point this week, I just drafted out real quickly um, plotting points of, uh, as I grew, of like social moments in our American culture as it relates to sort of our sexual identity that I thought, these were notable moments as I was kind of growing. So when I'm a child of the 80s, I remember when MTV became a thing. Okay. It's kind of, that was a big deal for a young boy I never saw Murphy Brown but you may remember some of you when it was a show called Murphy Brown and she in the show recommended someone to get an abortion it was a big deal Dan Quayle had words to say about that if you remember who he was I remember when NYPD Blue became a show and uh, they were the first network television show to have a sex scene on network television. And it forever changed what you could do on network TV after 9 p.m. I remember late night cable, I'm sorry to say. I remember the internet and everything that it has meant. I remember when hookup culture became normative. When Fifty Shades of Grey became a bestseller. And here we are where Tinder is just another app. Normal changes. Not only does normal change, but normal is changing in the area of sort of our human sexuality, at an accelerating rate. Normal is changing at an abnormal rate. So this series is, in a way, our attempt to try to get our heads and hearts around the concept of normal human sexuality in such a wildly abnormal world. I mean, here we are. We're sitting on the threshold of... uh, Well, I'll just say it this way. There really is nothing more obvious in human life than a man and a woman. And here we are. So let's go ahead and pray. Um, Because this uh, sermon starts off a fairly difficult sermon series, and this sermon is kind of after the amen, it gets rough. So (coughs) let's bow our heads, Lord. Lord, we want to we ask for uh, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word for my own part, Lord. Um, I pray uh, your guidance and your rule. Father, we thank you for Scripture. We pray it would serve as a light to us. That it would extinguish darkness and that it would cut both ways. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So you should be in Judges 19, but I'm going to start in Genesis 19. So you didn't hear me wrong there, but the words will be on the screens behind us. I'm going to start on the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah. So those are two cities in in the ancient world. They serve in the Bible as the classic best example of the worst example. So they're, they're, you're gonna, we're going to read it and you're going to hear some really wicked things being done in the city of Sodom. And it's going to hold in the word as uh, kind of like we use the name Hitler in our culture as sort of the example of the worst. And the Bible's going to use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to reference it all throughout the word. So you're gonna, it's referenced in Deuteronomy. It's referenced many times in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's referenced in Amos. It's referenced multiple times in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. It's referenced in Romans, 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation. The count of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because it is the example of, of maybe... When people get to a place where the wrath of God is the best course of action. When it's not worth being remediated. Okay, when I think the best response is just kill it. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, another interesting feature about Sodom and Gomorrah that I want us to pay attention to is Sodom and Gomorrah are two cities that are in the land that will one day be Israel. So they're representative of the ambient normalized society of the people in the land of Canaan that will one day become the inheritance of Israel. This is why the Lord's going to say, hey, when you go in, drive this out. You don't want to become like them. Okay, so we're gonna see a good example of a really bad example that's a normal example of Canaan. Okay, or of what ultimately becomes the land of Canaan. So And will one day become the land of Israel. All right, let me read, I'm gonna read nine verses, and you can will just it's gonna go quick, I'm gonna just point out some major details here. The Lord's going to send two angels down to Sodom, really for our good, to bear as witnesses as to the decayed state of the people. And here's what it says. The angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go in your way. They said, no. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. And I'll stop there. The angels are going to sort of save the day, rescue Lot, his daughters, and the city will be destroyed and then it will therefore go on to become the biblical standard of, of deserving of wrath. Uh, and by the way, if there's things in this account that you don't like, okay, uh, God hates everything in this account. That's why it's here. So, like, I just want you to know if there are details in this account that you were just like, I hate that part of the story. God hated that part of the story with you. Alright? This is the example of failed humanity. There's a couple details I want us to, to note in particular. One It doesn't appear as though the town square is safe. The angels come in. Lot says, Hey, why don't you come to my house? They say, No, 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 we'll stay in the town square. He says, "Um, No, how about you come to my house? Okay, that's one detail worth noticing. Another detail that's worth appreciating is it's an outsider actually living in Sodom who is the one person of refuge. So Lot is not from Sodom. He's he's an outsider living on the inside. So even the the, the grace or the right-mindedness that the angels do receive is actually coming from an outsider who's made a home there, which could be a sermon for another day. okay. But nonetheless, it's worth noting. We should also see the whole city turns out, young and old, to the last man. So it's not like this is a a tiny expression. It's not like Lot lives in the wrong part of town. And they claim the right to forcibly rape the visiting men. Another detail we should note is that Lot offers his daughters as a substitute. Somehow that's better for him. And that ends up only escalating the crisis. Those are the details of Sodom and Gomorrah and they're important to hold on to because that's ultimately an example of what life was like, what life can become like in the land of Canaan before Israel came in. There's a line one day, the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, Canaan, but not yet. It's going to take Hundreds of years, over 400 years, he says, because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. In other words, there's, there's a, there's a, it, at this present time, you might say, it would not be appropriate just to uproot these people and kick them out. They're still in a state of decline, and at some point, they're going to get to the place where wrath is worthy, and I'll give you this land, you'll be my instrument, something like that, okay? <clears throat> this is a best example of the worst case. So with that, we can go to uh, Judges 19, and in turning there, you're, you're, we're crossing about seven hundred years. I don't know, six, seven hundred years. A lot has happened. So Abraham has become uh, the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes have become a nation. Israel, Israel has gone through their captivity in Egypt and been rescued out by God. God's brought Israel to the mountain. He's given them His law. He's entered into covenant with them. He's shown them His love. He's dwelling with them in the tabernacle. He's ministering through them through his prophet Moses. He feeds them with manna from heaven. He offers water from the rock. He's guided them for 40 years through the wilderness safely with care. He's led them across the River Jordan. And he's he's prevailed with them as they've gone through the land of Israel, driving out these wicked peoples one by one so that at last they can settle in the land of Israel and be the people God wants them to be. Now we find ourselves in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges describes an account where the people of God, once getting established in the land, took the Lord for granted, took their eyes off of him and his word, and slowly and progressively began, they forgot the Lord, and they chased after the surrounding norms. They normalized. That's the book of Judges is an account of the moral decay of Israel and how they normalized with the peoples around them. Okay, and Judges nineteen is the end of the story. Okay, so Israel is in decline, and we're picking up at the end of the book. So we're—I'd say climax—but we're at the bottom. I need a good English professor to tell me what word you use there for low max. Okay, it's that one. It's the valley. So I'm going to read uh, the first four verses. It's going to give us a little bit of background. I'll do some summarizing, then we'll jump into the heart of the story. Here's the first four verses. <clears throat> You're going to hear things, you, you should have the right to ask like questions in your mind, like, oh, that seems weird. In those days when there was no king in Israel, which, by the way, let me just stop, that's the writer of Judges' way of sort of winking at the problem the people would say, hey, it would be nice if we had a king. The reality is, is you might read this, in those days when God was no longer king of Israel, okay, that's kind of what's the innuendo. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house, to Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. He remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And I'll stop. Because there are some peculiar details here that are worth noting. <clears throat> First of all, what, i saying if you're like a questioning reader, you get a gold star if something in your mind said, what is a Levite doing with a concubine? Okay, a Levite, after all, is the priestly tribe. He's a priest. What's the priest doing with a concubine? And the word is what it sounds like to you. In, in sort of this ancient culture, it would be a second-rate wife. Okay, so he is her husband. So she has all the obligations that a wife has to a husband but he does not have all of the obligations necessarily that a husband does to a wife she doesn't have status she's not going to carry lineage okay she's there for the reason you think she's there most likely why does a priest have a concubine okay And then we hear that the girl leaves him. The text says he's unfaithful. There's a couple ways to go. I I think sort of the history of the way the Old Testament's been translated in addition to the context of the story uh, inclines me to think not that she was unfaithful sexually but that she was unfaithful to him in the fact that she leaves him and goes home. So we have a concubine who does not like her husband wants to get away from this. And there's a third detail. The entire account, she is always referred to by the word girl, not woman. And they're different in the Hebrew. She's young. So there's very little scholarship that can reach into this. I would just be inclined to say, It is what you think it is. She goes home. After about four months, he comes back, tries to, you know, trying to win her back. The father, her father, sees this man and then enters into this pretty elaborate hospitality, which is actually going to extend beyond what we read. Stay with this, enjoy the meal. It goes, three days go by. Actually, four days will go by. The fifth day comes, and in, in all this time, the man's trying to leave with, with, this girl concubine, he's trying to go back home, and the father's like, no, 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 I got duh, I got a, I got a ham in the oven. Like, not a ham. Well, it's judges. It might be a ham, <laughs> okay? I got, I, I got, you know, I got dinner waiting. You'll enjoy it. So stay, stay, stay. That goes on three days, four days. On the fifth day, and now I'm summarizing the next of the account. On the fifth day, stay, stay with us. He stays for a while. They're like, why don't you stay the night? And the guy says, we're leaving. No, 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 we're leaving, We're leaving. So again, scholarship, I'm just saying, like you read commentaries and they're they're all over the place because we don't have that many details, okay? My heart sort of wonders, is this a father trying to protect a daughter from a miserable life? Stay here, just stay here, okay? But he doesn't. They get up, they leave about you know, afternoon, they're traveling. And Bethlehem is about six miles south of a city that you will one day know as Jerusalem, but at the time it was called Jebus because the Jews had not conquered it. So the servant of, of the Levite man says, hey, we should probably stop, it's getting late, let's stay here tonight. And the, and the Levite says, we're not staying in this foreign city. The implication is, is, who knows what kind of craziness goes on in there. We're going on until we get to a Jewish city. So they go about another four miles. It's getting dark and they arrive at the Jewish town of Gibeah, which is in the region of Benjamin. And they go to stay there for the night. And with that, I'll pick up in verse 15. In the middle of 15, it says, and he, that's the Levite, and he went in and sat down in the open square of the city. For no one took them in into his house to spend the night. So I'm gonna keep reading. I want you to remember the echoes from Genesis 19, okay? All those things we talked about, just keep them in your hip pocket. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and he was a sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the... Young man with your servants, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for you all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house, and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and ate and drank. As they were making merry their hearts <clears throat> excuse me, as they were making their hearts merry, behold the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Stop there. Does that sound familiar to you? The Hebrew, in some cases, is identical. It's identical. In other words, you are not allowed to miss this. We see Town Square not safe. We see it's an outsider living on the inside who's the only one to offer safe harbor. We see the city turns out claiming for the right to forcibly rape the man. Same thing. And it continues. Let me pick up on 23. This is going to get really hard, by the way. And the man... The master of the house went to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them whatever seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her master was until the light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. There is no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened, or been seen from this day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt, until this day, consider it, take counsel, and speak. This might be the worst story in the Bible, just as far as this darkness goes. Personally, the part where he says, he walks out and says, get up, let's go, is such a low moment. The net result of the story is, right, nothing about his, by the way, God is silent in the whole story, not one reference. Like, if you hate everything in this story, God hates everything in this story. And you're wondering, like, why didn't God rescue them like Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I'll say it this way. These are all people of God. These are all Israelites, every one of them. There are four tribes represented in this story. One is a priest. One's a priest. They all have the law. They all have the covenants. They all have the promises of God. They all have all of those things. This is purely and entirely the people of God doing what happened at Sodom to themselves. And we are supposed to know that. We ought not miss it. By this point in history, Israel has normalized. It's normalized to the world around it. And it becomes a place of great trial. I mean, this is where the first great civil war of Israel breaks out, is all the tribes will come against Gibeah. Except Benjamin will literally ally and stand behind its city of Gibeah. Let me just interject. Um, a moment of hope here, <clears throat> just because this is so dark. I want us to. I want to remind ourselves: God's work in us is the work of redemption. So, He, God, is a savior who rescues us out of these dark and miry places and places us in this, in, in the light. He gives us a spirit. He makes us holy. Right. So there's. It's even here, this is a moment not without hope because even the fact that God's giving, it to, giving this to us to say be careful is an act of hope. Be careful. I don't want you to be like this. I love you. That's why this story is here. Israel is God's covenant people. They're supposed to be the light to the Gentiles, and here they are just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Every word of it is, I mean, just practically matches. And it matches the theme of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of the theme or the mantra of Judges. In other words, the writer of Judges is saying, This is what happens to the people of God when they take their eyes off the Lord and cast their gaze upon the people around them. This is what happens to the people of the Lord. We don't have time to read more scripture, but if you read through the Torah, there's these moments, these very clear moments where the Lord is very intent about this. Leviticus 18, is gonna be this long list of sexual prohibitions, and that usually is what the hot topic is, but my interest is on how it's bookended. On either side of the list, in Leviticus 18, the Lord says something to this effect. I'm bringing you into a land of people that do all sorts of warped and perverted things. Don't do those things. Don't don't follow after those people or you'll become like them. He says, rather obey my commands, walk in my statutes, follow my ways then you get a list of all the prohibitions. And at the end of the list, guess what it says? It says, you see, the people in the land do all these things. When you come in, don't participate in these things. Rather, obey my statutes, follow my commands, walk on my ways. Notice the Lord's, the Lord, the remedy, the remedy to not conforming to the people around us is not that we constantly gaze at them. It's the Lord saying, no, 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 turn your head, look at me. Just keep your eyes on me. Watch me. Do what I say, just... Follow my commands, walk in my ways. Don't you? Don't need. To, it reminds me, back in the days of Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster? I, I had little kids back then, and we'd go to get the movies, and you'd walk into Blockbuster, and I remember my sons, like their heads would turn in the aisle, because you know, remember all the videos had the raunchiest, darkest covers. It was always like, how do we can keep, How can I get you to rent this movie, with a picture? And you just felt. I I, I remember even with pain saying this. I could feel the neck of my son just twisting. You know, and I'd reach down with my hand, kind of cup his cheek and bend it back. Not because I'm God, because I don't want him to grow up like me. Like, I don't want him to... Can I get an amen? Like, our kids don't need to see what we've seen. We've seen enough. We just want our kids to see the right things. That's God. It's God's reaching down saying to Israel, don't look, don't look. Just eyes forward, obey my commands, follow my statutes, walk on my ways. You'll be okay. You don't need to look at that. Okay? This is what happens when we crane our necks. This is what will always happen when we crane our necks. What is normal? I want to talk about normal for a second. What is normal in our minds affects what is true in our minds. I want to connect the two. What you think is normal, especially in the moral realm, what you think is normal has an effect on what you think is true. I know I'd like to say, and I think in many ways we think we know the truth of God. Okay, but we haven't cornered the market on the truth of God. We seek in ways to understand the truth of God, but what is normal to you affects the, your capacity to understand the truth of God. And if normal is drifting, so is also in equal measure our understanding of truth because they're tethered. They're, they're, they're shackled at the ankle with one another. They're prisoners together. This is how I get it when uh, one of my children comes home and they want to they watch a show can we watch that? And I'll say, you know, ah, your mom and I, we really don't want to watch that. That's kind of, th- we try to give our little holy speech. And, and they will say this, Dad, literally, when you get the literally, you know, you're, here it comes. Literally, everyone in my grade has seen this show. There are sixth graders, Dad, who have seen this show. Tommy's dad, and he's a pastor, he's seen the show. Okay, I'll get that on occasion. All right. what is, you hear it? What is normal to the child affects their understanding of truth. Right? I remember coming home from college and I, you know, college wore me down. My language started changing. The things I started looking at started changing. Like, and I come home and you walk, it's like I walk into the home, my, my parents' home, and all of a sudden there's these two competing standards, what's normal for me and what's normal in the home. And they were like this. Because my understanding of truth is ankle-tied to what I think is normal. What I'm saying is, is, if you think something's normal, you are allied to it morally. We cannot act like it's just an insight that we've had. Actually, your decision on what's normal is a moral decision, and it's connected to what you think is true. And there's this relationship, right? What we think is normal affects what we think is true. And how we understand truth affects how we understand obedience to the Lord. So when our meshwork of truth, the more and more it drifts away from God's truth because it's tethered to our understanding of normal, and normal's always changing, and in fact it's changing at an abnormally accelerated rate, as it's drifting away like this, all of a sudden we think, and we, all the while we think we know the truth. Yeah, because we learn those verses. So all the while, we think we understand the truth, but our truth is a counterfeit now, way over here. And now the obedience that shows up in the Word seems ridiculous, unbearable, embarrassing. Like you hardly even want to say what you've heard the Bible say about our sexual culture because it's so unreasonable to how we're living. So as a parent, do, do I actually say to my child, you know, actually... The holy God who made you says that sex is the exclusive purview of a husband and a wife. Live that way. Can you really say that? I mean, it's as that one is an easy one, right? It's obviously true in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not. We're not splitting hairs with you on this one. How unreasonable is that today? Especially now when we're convinced our kids to not get married till the 30. So we followed truth to a way that makes obedience absurd. We did that. Okay? Here's the setup. Okay, this whole sermon today is a setup. For the series to come, because I've been sitting in the background thinking about this for months and months and months, and I thought, you know, there's two pastoral ways to go. There's the careful way, where every Sunday I'm uber careful, and I and I run the risk of not saying anything, or I just say it. I'm not saying it like I've mastered it, okay? I, sexually, you're looking at someone who has come through the ringer, okay? So is the word I'm interested in. Okay? This sermon series, we're going to just kind of say it with love and fill our hearts with love. But we're just going to say it. And what I'm here to say is is at some point in the series, you're likely going to hate something you hear. You're going to hate it. Because normal has pulled our truth so far away as to seem absurd. All right. I know we're late. Uh, but I got more, so we got to do this. It's just three more sub-paragraphs with subpart part Bs. <laughs> Hang with me here. There's a kind of Christianity, which is maybe not much of a Christianity at all, but it's a popular way of, it's operative Christianity. I'll take it that way, okay? <clears throat> I'll call it, not Christianity, better thanity. It's better thanity. It's a kind of Christianity where you sort of estimate your your peace with God based upon the fact that you're better than the people around you. Okay, so how am I doing? Well, you say, well, look at the world going to hell in a handbasket. I don't do that, so I'm Christian. That's sort of the positive feedback loop. of if, As long as there's a little bit of contrast in the pigment of like sort of their behavior and our behavior, okay, I'm in the kingdom of God, okay? That's better vanity, is really all of it is. And I just want you to appreciate that if... Normal is constantly shifting. Better vanity is doomed. Because if all, your, if all if your metric of being a good Christian is just being a little better than a world that is accelerating at an abnormal rate away from the Lord, then you could be accelerating at, at the exact same abnormal rate away from the Lord and still feel fine. As long as you're always just a little better. It's like if you watch the world jump out of an airplane without a parachute and you jumped 5 seconds later the whole way down you could be like that guy has a problem i don't know what he's going to do well he's going to hit the ground 5 seconds before you you know i did a <clears throat> i did a semester at the naval academy many years ago i called it i needed a break so i went to the naval academy and while i was there we had this course where we had to swim a mile in our uniform in 40 minutes if you want to pass you have to be able to swim a mile in your uniform in 40 minutes okay it was not fun but there's an old joke at the Naval Academy, which is, if a ship sinks, you can. how do you tell the Naval Academy graduates from the non-Naval Academy graduates? And they say, well, I don't know. How do you tell? And they say, because all the Naval Academy graduates drown 40 minutes later. <laughs> when does a ship sink within 40 minutes swim of an island? Like, this is us in the world. If we're just 40 minutes better than the world well, we're still doomed if we're on the trajectory. Listen, if your sense of your Christian walk is simply, well, I don't do that, well, you will tomorrow. Or your children will tomorrow. And we're not called, we're not even called to fixate on what the world is doing. That's just the fundamental problem. There's no witness in that, by the way, because it's a fundamentally judgmental faith. We're supposed to be a light and a beacon We're supposed to be ministers of reconciliation. We're supposed to be ambassadors of the God of light to the world. We can't, why get mad at the world for doing bad things? Lord, not for the grace of Jesus Christ. That's all I would be. You've been called out and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your body's not your own. Therefore, glorify the Lord with your body. This is what this is about. We could spend all day talking about what's normal and get nowhere. And I could come back five years from now and we'll have a whole new set of normal. Truth is, there really is nothing so normal in the world as a man and a woman. And yet here we are. What we need to talk about is God's ideal. That's what we need to talk about. And that's what we're going to talk about. This, the rest of our time in sexuality is going to be not what is a normal man and a normal woman, but... How did God design man and how did God design woman? What does he want? And there'll be some part of you that loves it and there'll be some part of you that hates it. But really, you can either have the norm or you can pursue the ideal. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we set out. May we be abnormally... Behoven to you, Lord. Just grab our cheek and keep our neck straight. Oh, Lord. For our sake, for the sake of those who come after us, for the sake of those who are right now on the other side of the curtain, that they might see what vibrant life in Christ looks like. This is what we ask for, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.